First, let me say how much of a thrill it is to be coming into the Hall of Fame with Bob Feller, Mr. McKechnie, and Mr. Rouse. I want to also let you know that I feel quite inadequate here this afternoon, or this morning, but I think a lot of this has been eliminated because today it seems that everything is complete. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just pay a, a word of thanks and a, a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I, in sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful, and I'm sorry I've taken so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. And welcome to another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, highlighting the stuff that's been stepped in so you don't have to. I'm Son Edom, and what you just heard was uh, Jackie Robinson, his acceptance speech into the National Baseball MLB Hall of Fame. That took place July 1962. You know, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about and take a look at Jackie Robinson and his influence on people and the game of baseball and civil rights and things like that. In case you don't know, the, the reason for this is because, first off, Jackie Robinson was more than just baseball. Everybody knows him as baseball. Every April 15th, it's tax day and Jackie Robinson day. And Jackie Robinson Day, because April 15th, 1947, is when Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier, becoming the first black player to play. Now, the Negro Leagues were going on, and Jackie Robinson played in the Negro Leagues. He was uh, in 1945. And then in 47 is when he came to the Major Leagues to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He played a 10-year career with the Dodgers, first base, second base, third base, uh, 28 years old when he entered Major League Baseball on April 15th, 1947. We'll get to some more of his accolades in a little bit. But here's the thing. So Jackie Robinson is known for baseball, and a lot of people know of his day. 
If I said, what's his number? You could probably give me his number, 42. But do you really know who he is and the impact he has on today? And perhaps the potential issue that baseball might be having with some of the things that they're doing today. And so what I wanted to do is play a couple clips to get you familiar with who Jackie Robinson really was, what he went through. Because a lot of times, and today on the... uh, what we're doing is, uh, first off, I should let you know that we do our podcast live Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. Pacific time on RadioWarp.com. So as of this broadcast, we had the uh, Chauvin verdicts, the police officer who kneeled on the neck of George Floyd. He was convicted. And so um, it's kind of, I'd planned this Jackie Robinson conversation even before that. So it coming together on that day is kind of interesting because I'm going to play something in a little bit that is going to kind of merge the two worlds together. And when I put these shows together, and I do a lot of research, and I try to bring some audio clips and some interesting things to you, the viewer, you, the listener. And there was some clips in here, especially one in particular that I want to play in a little bit, that really ties Jackie Robinson's world together with today's world. And it's pretty significant. Jackie Robinson only played 10 years in Major League Baseball. And then he retired, went to the Hall of Fame in 1962. But after that, he was a civil rights activist. He got involved in a lot of the civil rights movement, tried to make things better. And instead of me just describing all of Jackie Robinson and what he did on and off the field, we're going to let him talk about it and let you hear about it. But I think it's interesting to know that, first off, when you look at Jackie Robinson, the player, again, in 1947, he's 28 years old, he enters Major League Baseball. Now, could you imagine? So recently we had Georgia with their voter ID laws, and we talked about that a couple episodes ago. And so Major League Baseball has decided to pull out the All-Star game from Atlanta, Georgia, and move it to Denver, Colorado. Atlanta, being a primary black community, Hank Aaron, they were going to celebrate the life of Hank Aaron, who played in Atlanta for the Braves, and at one time was Major League Baseball's all-time home run hitter at 715. And then you have Jackie Robinson from Cairo, Georgia. And so baseball moves things out to Denver, primarily white community. But when you take a look at what Jackie Robinson went through, and they're calling it the Jim Crow laws today. But when we go through and we look at what Jackie Robinson went through, I don't think you can compare the things that Jackie Robinson went through to the things that athletes and people go to or go through today. I'm not going to spend the political side of it too much because you can go other places and you can get that. But do you really know Jackie Robinson? We hear about it. You've got Jackie Robinson Fields. Uh, I know at UCLA it's Jackie Robinson Field. You've got Jackie Robinson Fields other places. His number 42 is retired by baseball uh, on, on April 15th every year. Everybody wears 42. So Jackie Robinson, he died a young guy. He was 53 years old when he passed away in 19, was it 72? And so, again, Many years have gone by now. Was it almost 50 years since he's passed? He would have been uh, 100 a couple years ago. So, yeah, almost, uh, almost 50 years since he passed. And so oftentimes the person of Jackie Robinson gets put aside, and the baseball player, which was a small percentage of who he was, is what everybody focuses on. Now, Jackie Robinson was Rookie of the Year. In fact, he was the first ever Rookie of the Year. It was an inaugural award back in 1947. He was MVP in 1949. He was a six-time All-Star in 10 years that he played. His career batting average was 311. 
made the Hall of Fame in 1962. He went to six World Series in 10 years, winning in 1955, and he played all 10 years with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a four-sport athlete in college. He played football, basketball, baseball, and track, although at the time during baseball in college, it wasn't really his sport. He really struggled a lot doing uh, baseball at UCLA, which, by the way, his only downfall, he's a Bruin. Just saying. But he was also instrumental, like I said, in the civil rights movement. He was there at the uh, Martin Luther King March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech on August 28th, 1963. And he was instrumental in a lot of other things. And I think the thing that you're going to find out about Jackie Robinson and his family, because there's some clips I want to play from his wife too, what they went through and what they endured and how it compares to maybe people today. We look at Martin Luther King. We played some clips of him on the show. And you look at the, the, the character that these people had and the way that they approached adversity, the way they looked at adversity. It's pretty amazing. These are pretty amazing people. You know, it's often said, God can't give you more than you can handle. And a lot of people think that's an unfair statement. But I think there's some truth to that too. Because when you look at the way the Robinsons approached everything that they went through, the endurement that they had to do with all the bullying, the harassing, the death threats, all that stuff, it's pretty remarkable that he was able to stay focused on the prize at hand. And that was, A, to break baseball's color barrier and make baseball integrated. And then, two, play baseball. Become a professional baseball player in Major League Baseball. And so there was an interview that he did uh, some years later after his baseball playing days with Dick Cavett. And I want to I wanna play some clips from that because it's pretty telling. There's not a whole lot of stuff out there that I was able to find of Jackie Robinson just having a conversation with somebody talking about his experiences. And so let's start it off. Here's uh, Jackie Robinson talking about Dodgers owner Branch Rickey. Now, Branch Rickey was the owner of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and it was his idea to integrate baseball. He was going to bring a black athlete, a black player, to the Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson wasn't specifically on his mind yet. Jackie Robinson would be uh, eventually on his mind and was playing with the Montreal Royals, a minor league team for the Dodgers. But this was how Jackie Robinson describes Dodgers owner, Branch Rickey. I work for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Rickey. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him, I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's, a, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Brand not tricky. enough people are willing to do as Mr. Rickey did. So Branch Rickey, the owner of the Dodgers, wasn't just out to break color barrier and bring Jackie Robinson in. He was there advising him along the way, guiding him, giving him the confidence that he needed to be able to play, to overcome the things that he was going to face. He was sincere about everything that he wanted to give Jackie Robinson, and he was dedicated to that process. And how often is it that we need people around us that are like that? We go out and want to try something, whether it's a job, whether it's an experience, want to play an instrument, play a sport, whatever it is. There has to be a supporting cast there, a supporting cast to be able to lift us up, a supporting cast to be able to lean on when we have to, when we need that support. And so Branch Rickey, his only thing wasn't to just put him out there and be the guy. 
to introduce a black player into Major League Baseball. But Branch Rickey was a guy that really can, was concerned and cared about Jackie Robinson as a whole, as a person, advising him, going through the steps with him, talking to him, giving him advice. You're going to endure a lot of bullying, a lot of racism, a lot of bad words, a lot of maybe cheap shots, injuries, plays, calls, not going your way. But you know what? I'm going to guide you through it. I'm going to help you through it. We're going to give you the confidence to be able to do what you are going to be able to do. And he was sincere about it. And so I find that, first of all, that's one thing that's extremely important with anything that we do. And as we move forward as a society, we need to be able to have that vision of Branch Rickey and be able to look at people regardless of who they are and be, you know what? I'm going to invest in people. I'm going to invest in someone and help them out regardless of who they are. And I'm going to be there to walk that journey, walk that path with them, especially when it comes to something as groundbreaking as what Jackie Robinson was able to accomplish. Because again, you think about a guy who was 28 when he entered the league. Now he's 38, 10 years later when he retires. So he, a lot of his prime, baseball playing prime years, were kind of lost because he came in at such a, a later age. So he set the stage with Jackie Robinson and Ricky Branch, talking about, or Branch Ricky, talking about the relationship that they had and how Branch Ricky was significant and important in the journey. But then you get to the meat, the heart of the matter, and that's the racism. The racism that Jackie Robinson faced, the racism that he endured, what he went through. And he's always been careful not to get too deep into a lot of things because I found that Jackie Robinson tends to be a positive person. He tends to be someone that looks at the challenge and tries to find a way to overcome that challenge. Now, I'm sure in the inner sanctum, in the quietness of his inner circle, he probably shared a lot more. But when you go and you try to look and try to find things, there's not a whole lot out there where he just comes out blatant with revenge and hateful speech. He's very appreciative of the opportunities. He's very appreciative of the chances that he got. He understands that there was others that came alongside him to help him. He didn't really do it on his own or try to take the weight of the world and put it on his shoulders on his own. He was able to rely on others, and others were able to step up and see that he needed that support too. And there were some brave individuals that stepped up and stood by his side. And that's what we need to remember is that if we are someone that isn't necessarily going through something, are we the ones that are going to stand up, be the brave ones that stand up and stand side by side with somebody that's going through that journey? So here's uh, Jackie Robinson talking about the racism that was rampant when he entered Major League Baseball. You name them in terms of race, and they were yelled. Everything it was quite vicious. I think it's Philadelphia Phillies with Ben Chapman was perhaps the most vicious of any of the people in terms of name-calling. The team members? Some members of the team, but there is a fellow by the name of Lee Hanley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there and apologized for the Phillies. He just says, I just want you to know all of us don't feel that way, but it's been led by the manager, and many of the guys are doing it simply because of instructions, I would have to imagine. But it did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say he's awfully sorry. And, and actually what they did was to sort of solidify the Brooklyn Ball Club because... Mr. Ricky told me one of the things he said early was that when your ball club starts to take up 
for you in certain situations, our battle is most of the way won. And, mm-hmm. and I think that Philly incident started the Dodgers to kind of mold as a unit. So again, he points out one individual, Lee Hanley, that was on the Philadelphia Phillies that actually came down and apologized for the actions of his team. But you notice the talk about systemic racism that was there. The Philadelphia Phillies, led by their manager, Ben Chapman, was so vocal in their racism towards Jackie Robinson. And they put it out there. And then, as Jackie describes it, there was instructions to be racist. There was instruction to focus this racism on Jackie Robinson because of the color of his skin and because of who he was. And others followed suit. But there were a few people that were courageous enough to not participate and to actually approach Jackie Robinson and say, you know what, this isn't right. We apologize for it. But the racism also solidified the club. You take a look at that clip and people are sitting there and I bet the Dodgers, I bet there's some people on the Dodgers that didn't want Jackie Robinson. Then, in fact, I know you can look it up yourself and follow the story. There were a lot of people that went to Branch Rickey and said, you know what? We don't want him on the team. But there he was. And so a lot of people had to rethink maybe some of the things that they were learned, some of the things they were taught about what it was towards black people and their feelings and emotions toward them because now they had a teammate. And so when people started to see this racism against Jackie Robinson, they started to come together and surround him. And it solidified the team. And the Philadelphia Phillies were instrumental in that team coming together. Now the city of Philadelphia and the Phillies eventually, some years later, apologized for that whole thing, being a part of that. The city of brotherly love, which is kind of interesting. But again, people, they're going to change. People have the opportunity to change. And a city like Philadelphia, the team like the Phillies and others, I'm sure, change. But right away, some people noticed that there was something wrong. And they stood up against it. The other thing that Jackie Robinson did that was pretty amazing was he kept his eye on the prize. He just kept focused on the plan that they had. What the end result would be. Because I think Jackie Robinson knew that There was something more to this than baseball because he was a part of the civil rights movement and a part of trying to get equality before baseball even. And he was someone that was able to use baseball to preach his message. And it was a peaceful one. I mean, there was a lot of times where people would, you know, cheap shots. Obviously, like he said, every name in the book was called towards him and it was systemic and it was forced upon some players to do that. And so he was able to kind of not take it in stride because I'm sure it bothered him, but he was able to understand that the way he reacted was going to be important. I read a part of the research that I was doing. There were some articles and some stories about one time Jackie Robinson was, was playing. I think he was at second base at the time, and he committed an error. Could have been a costly error at the times because the, the Brooklyn fans started to turn on him a little bit. They started to boo him. They started to jeer him. And it started to create some momentum of this anti-Jackie sediment. Pee-wee Reese, his teammate, was playing shortstop. Pee-wee Reese is from the South. And he comes over to Jackie Robinson and merely puts his arm around Jackie Robinson. The crowd hushes. Because they see something. A white player from the South going over to Jackie Robinson, putting his arm around him, telling him it's okay, it's just an error. We can move on from this. 
It kind of rallied the fans who were starting to turn on Jackie. And now that brought them back to the side of Jackie Robinson. Now, was race a part of it, or was it just the fact that Jackie messed up? Well, it's hard to say. But because somebody was able to step forward and be there to help him, to lift him up, it got the crowd back on, the fans back on Jackie Robinson's side. So it's important that when we go through things, even things of today, whether you're talking about you know the police brutality, whether you're talking about Georgia voter ID laws, whether you're talking about things in your own community, issues that you have, it's important to have people that, first of all, are going to be there that, you can, that can be supportive, that understand. People that are going to realize and see and be proactive instead of reactive. How often is it that we see people react to things and how easy is it to react to things? It's harder to be proactive. But he wanted to rise above it. He wanted to keep his eye on the prize, and that's what he did. Sure, a lot of it was thought to be strategy, but... uh... Uh, it wasn't going to upset me. There was really too much to be done at that particular time in terms of breaking the baseball barrier to allow uh, name-calling to bother me. I keep remembering what my mother told me when I was a kid, although I've always been a guy that turned back. She said something about sticks and stones will break your bones, you know, and so not to be concerned about it. Well, I didn't at the time, uh, and fortunate for the advice that uh, I got from Mr. Ricky and the encouragement and the guidance I got from my wife at home, we were able to, to withstand most of the kinds of situations that came up we were prepared because of the numbers of people on our side first off if you notice there he was prepared there was a preparedness because they knew what was coming and then he had the support so whatever we go through we need to be prepared for and we need to have that support system there in place so that that way we can endure whatever it is that's going to come our way but he kept his eye on the prize because he knew there's something greater than just himself he knew there was something more at stake than just himself. He had that greatness in him, and he was going to let that greatness come out. He was going to raise the standard. He wasn't going to sink to the level of everybody else. Now, he uses the analogy sticks and stones, and if you don't know what that analogy is, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words or names will never hurt me. To a certain extent, I'm sure he applied that, but deep down, some of those things are going to hurt. They're going to sting. But he was able to rise above it, keep that greatness at a high level, raise the standard, inspire people around him because eventually he won over his teammates. He won over his teammates with his hard play. He won over his teammates and the fans with his personality and who he was. He could have easily lashed back, been reactionary, tried to take vengeance, be retaliatory, but he didn't. He endured it and he was able to rise above, keep his eye on the prize. And he was able to start to get people, that sentiment towards him. It's not easy. And I think there's a class to that character. And there's a dignity to the character that Jackie Robinson showed that we can learn from. Because it's easy to lash out in violence and in vengeance. And it's easy to go after that quick response, that zing, to try to get back at somebody. But it takes a high road to be able to overlook that and to continue on with who you are and your character and not sink to somebody else's level. We do it on social media all the time. We can sink to someone's level on social media or in anything else that we do, we can react towards somebody and sink to the level. But are we going to rise above it? Are we going to keep that success mentality, that lion mentality, 
that championship mentality to go after whatever it is that we've set for ourselves. Or we can get sidetracked with all the other things that are going on, even though the journey might be difficult. And the more you look into Jackie Robinson's life and you look at things that are going on today, and even though those things might be unjust, and even though these things might seem to be because the narrative says it is that they're bad for certain people, nothing what this guy went through, nothing what Martin Luther King Jr. went through, nothing what a lot of people that have come before have gone through. Here's a, um, a clip of Jackie Robinson talking about having a purpose. And again, starting to kind of see how other people are starting to warm up to Jackie Robinson, his influence, and, and how the sentiment starts to change, how the mindset of people start to change, how people start to realize that Jackie Robinson is just another person as well, that he has value, he has worth, and that what's being done to him is wrong. Well, I think Carl Erskine, who, in my opinion, probably had the most understanding of the whole situation, he was quite concerned. Uh, in Roger Kahn's book, Boys of the Summer, he, he points out that he would feel awfully guilty when we go into a restaurant in the South and all the white fellows would be able to go in and sit down and eat and the rest of us would have to sit in the bus and wait for a sandwich or something to be brought out to us. And he was guilty that he didn't participate more. But I, I, when I think about guys like that, I have to think about lending a helping hand. The Pee Wee Reese's, for instance, a Southerner. And I, I really believe that it was the Southerner on our ball club that, that made the Ricky experiment much more of a success than anything else. Because I, I'm sure that all of their lives had heard that there was a great deal of difference between blacks and whites. And when they started to associate with us and they found out that all of the things people said, that you use the same locker rooms, the same showers, the same facilities, something's going to happen, they lost that fear after a short time. And they became, I guess, as aggressive in terms of the success as anybody. Of course, I feel a little good, too, about Dick because all that time was happening. Nothing was happening to me either, you know. So while they had their fears that things were going to happen to me, to them... I, I felt good because nothing was happening to me as well. So it made it kind of an even kind of a situation. But the whole situation in breaking the barrier was done simply because we had a purpose in mind to go out and win. Mm-hmm. And, and first it was Montreal. Then you moved into a town like Brooklyn. And it was just fantastic the way the fans responded and reacted. They were a great bunch of people. And I've always been a very appreciative for the support and guidance that we got from fans as well as from Mr. Ricky and the family. Mm-hmm. See, first off, they had a purpose, and that purpose was to win. And so they were able to rise above it. But can you imagine today having to sit on a bus while the rest of your team goes in and eats, and then someone will eventually, if they remember, to bring out a sandwich? And there's all kinds of stories. You can go to the Internet, and you can see and read and listen to all kinds of stories of the things that he had to go through the things that he had to endure, that others had to endure. Bathrooms, restaurants, laundromats, other things. It's pretty amazing what these people went through and what they endured. And we sit here today and we look at what we perceive as injustices, which they can be, which they probably are. But are they really to the level that someone like Jackie Robinson went through? 
or is the narrative out there? Is the narrative out there to keep us divided? Is the narrative out there to keep others in control? Because as we fight amongst ourselves, they're up there doing whatever it is that they're doing, keeping control on us, keeping their power, keeping their money, keeping their greed, because that's what they need to stay in control. Because if we came together as a community, if we came together as people, as we came together as the human race, what would that be like? Would that shatter the power structure, the people trying to keep us oppressed and divided? And then there's other people out there that think that they're entitled to something because maybe their family from generations ago went through something. And I understand that. I get that. But Jackie Robinson is sitting here. This interview is years later. And you don't hear any vengeance in his tone. You don't hear any, really any negative stuff. I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's inside him. But we've talked about in the past, what's on your heart is going to come out. What's on your heart is how you're going to treat people. And there's a time and a place where I'm sure Jackie Robinson pushed back. But as he sits there and he talks about it, even when we talked about Ben Chapman, probably the single most individual that was racist towards him. He had the team be racist toward him in the Phillies. Even then, he quickly jumped over Ben Chapman and went to Lee Hanley and said, this guy came and apologized. We kept our eye on the prize. We stayed focused. We had a purpose, and we stuck to that. And then he looks at the other people around him. This player did this to help me out. This player, he must have really kind of tried to understand because he could see as I'm sitting on the bus, he felt guilty about that. And see, it's not so easy for us to sit back. In hindsight, maybe it is, but it's not so easy for us to sit back when the pressures are on us to make a decision, when the pressures are on us to choose a certain way. How many times have you gone through school and the cool kids and you're in group and whoever it is that you're with wants you to do something? And you know deep down that's not the thing to do, but you go along with it anyways because you don't want to be outcast. It takes a real strong person to walk that path by yourself. And so Jackie was able to realize that people started to kind of see what was going on. And through his example, Carl Erskine, Pee Wee Reese, and others were starting to really understand what Jackie Robinson was about. Really start to understand that there is no difference. They're players. They're ball players. Skin color might be different. But in the end, they're there to win. In the end, they're there to beat the Yankees. That's what it was all about back then. About beating the Yankees, win the World Series, which they finally did in 1955. There was a commonality there. We want to play. We want to win. Went to the World Series six out of ten years. Pretty successful. Hall of Famer, pretty successful. MVP, Rookie of the Year, pretty successful. That's what it came about. It became about winning. It became about staying the course. It became about equality for all. And that's what he did. And that's what he stayed focused on. And even up until the end, with all the racial taunts, with all the death threats, with everything that he endured, he stood up there on July 23rd, 1962 at his Hall of Fame speech, and he was gracious, gracious to the people that were there to help him out, gracious to the people that walked the journey with him. And then after his playing days, he continued to do that. He continued it in business. He continued it in society, in his community, in his neighborhood. 
But there was something to his approach that won people over. There was something to his mannerisms and who he was that made a difference in the world around him. It made you want to aspire to be like him. And that's a lesson that we can learn today. And I think that's why, for me, when I look back at Jackie Robinson and I see the stuff that he went through, and people just think on April 15th, it's Jackie Robinson Day. Yay, we've got a stadium after him. We all were 42. He went to UCLA. He was a four-star athlete. And we look at him as the athletic accomplisher of things. But we forget that him as a person was such, he had such dynamic. He had so, so much of an impact as a person. And that's something we can draw from. That's something we can emulate. You know, I had the, the fortunate experience to uh, talk to his family, uh, briefly his uh, wife and then his children, and uh, gracious family. I mean, some of the nicest people. Alveda King had an opportunity to talk with her over the course of my years working in radio. Just great people. And the way they look at things and the way they process what goes on, they realize the injustices, but the solutions is what they're really looking for, long-term solutions. And that's what we need to be doing, looking at those long-term solutions to whatever it might be. What can we do to be a part of the solution? And I think a lot of times today, we have a, such a knee-jerk reaction. And if we want to be honest with ourselves, if it doesn't bother me, if it's not in my backyard, then I don't really care. Because sure, we might put a black square on a social media page, or we might um, post something else, say her name, whatever it might be. And that's the extent of it. But how much are we really not being activists going out and hitting the streets and protesting and calling it a day, but when it comes down to that grassroots level, our neighbors, the people that are around us, our community, are we doing anything? Are we going out and volunteering and helping out? Are we looking at people in our neighborhood that might need help and assist them? Or do we stay to ourselves? Are we afraid to talk to people? Are we afraid to find out? We're afraid to ask because we're really not interested. How's that? Uh, hey, how's it going? And then someone actually tells you how it's going, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I just wasn't really serious. I was just kind of being polite. How many times do we go through that? Hey, how's it going? Oh, shoot, this person's really going to tell me? Oh, no, i got to be somewhere. i got to get going. We all do that. But what if we were really genuine in that? How are you doing? Tell me about your experiences. There's nothing, nothing more fascinating, in my opinion, and you can't do it with everybody. But there's nothing more fascinating than learning about other people, their culture, their heritage, what they went through, their experiences, because everybody has it. I mean, I think one of the things that attracted me to the radio business was I would see everybody's biography or their, where they came from and all the different stations that they worked at and all the different places that they went to, all the different locales. Nobody ever worked at just one place. And if you did, I think you were probably robbed. Because there's an experience out there. My experience in Iowa was different from my experience from Nebraska, from Los Angeles, other places I've been. I've talked to a lot of people, some lifelong friends that have never moved or lived any other place. L.A. is the only place they know. And sure, the world comes to L.A. But if you're not out there, you're really not going to know what the rest of the people are thinking, what they're feeling, what they're doing, what they're going through. If you don't talk to other people, other cultures, you're not going to know what they're experiencing, what they're going through. Living in Glendale for many years, you hear about the genocide and the experience that the Armenian culture went through. 
And when you learn about it and you understand it, it's not just something that happened in history. It's something that's real. What about the Jewish Holocaust? You actually talk to people. You talk to people that went through that. What their experience was. Or just what about people coming here from another country and their experience and what they went through and why they liked coming here, what their drive and desire was to be here, their drive and desire to have equality. Why do people want equality? I've got a clip coming up from Jackie Robinson that is, I think, the most, probably one of the most prominent clips I've ever heard from Jackie Robinson. I'm going to play it in a little bit. But there's a reason why people want equality, not just because they want to be equal, but because they want to be a part of community. They want to be a part of society. They want to be a part because it's in us to be a part of it. It's in us to want to be with other people, to be accepted. And especially when it comes down to color of skin and race, that's not a reason. That's not a reason to exclude somebody. That's not a reason to treat somebody differently. And even though that's the narrative today, you look at leaders, you look at people, you look at Major League Baseball who celebrates Jackie Robinson Day every April 15th, and you look and you wonder, what's going on? Not, not too long ago, I read an article. In fact, I have it right here. Jimmy Rollins, a shortstop for the Philadelphia Phillies, in fact. He played, uh, I think he's still in the league, but a 20-year career. When he started 20 years ago, Okay, think about it. 1947, Jackie Robinson, the first player in Major League Baseball to be black. Fast forward 20 years ago, 13% of Major League Ball players were black. This year, under 8%. And it was brought up because as you celebrate Jackie Robinson Day every day or every year, once a year on April 15th, Jimmy Rollins is thinking, where's baseball's disconnect with the black community? Now, obviously, there's other issues involved. There's socioeconomic issues. They're losing out to basketball. They're losing out to football. Obviously, baseball, you need a field. You need equipment. You need all this stuff. Basketball, you just need a round ball and some sort of hoop, and you're good to go. An iron rim, and you're good to go. Obviously, Michael Jordan in the 90s was significant and huge in bringing, you know, interest in the inner cities and black communities for basketball. He exploded on the scene, Nike and all that, and then how the NBA rallied around the black community. So there's a lot of other things. You know, football, same thing. It's a team sport. can be expensive. Not everybody can play it because of different reasons. So there is a reason why baseball is shrinking as far as in the black community. But Jimmy Rollins was asking, where's all the people? I was thinking, okay, growing up, if you're in Los Angeles, you had Dusty Baker. You could think of it. You had Ken Griffey Sr. playing with the Reds. And you can go on and on with people that were black athletes in Major League Baseball. And they were focused. They were showcased. Jimmy Rollins is talking about where are these people today? Jimmy Rollins and his teammate at the time, they were able to, uh, Ryan Howard, they were able to win consecutive back-to-back National League Most Valuable Player Awards in 06 and 07. They won five straight National League East titles, two National League pennants, went to the World Series twice, won at once. All that success... Major League Baseball didn't do anything to market them. Didn't do anything to market that community. So they tried to get together with Spike Lee, and it was a one-off, and then it kind of fizzled from there. And so he's calling into question, what what are we doing? And sure, there'd be other factors involved, but when you look back at Jackie Robinson, his whole point was 
to stay focused on the prize, to bring equality to all and give everybody a chance. And again, like I mentioned earlier, he doesn't really go too much into some of the things, their name calling, obviously we know their death threats, things like that. But here's his uh, wife, Mrs. Robinson, talking about some of the things that they had to go to. And again, the situation at the ballpark when it came to seating. In Vero Beach, for instance, they allowed black people into the stands, but they had a hole in the fence. They couldn't come through the turnstile. They had a hole in the back, backfield fence, and they had to stoop and come in through this hole in the fence. It was so humiliating and so terrible, and I refused to go sit in that park. I have photographs of it where black people were dressed up to come to that park. The yes. men had on hats. Uh, the women were dressed. It was, it was an outing for them, a really lovely outing. And, they went, and when the black section filled up, they had to sit on the field on the ground. Hmm. So if an outfield, a ball came to the outfield, they uh-huh. had to scramble like animals. Yes. It was so humiliating and so distasteful that I used to go to the park and sit in the car and I wouldn't go in. I'd listen, try to hear the game on the, on the radio. So she wouldn't go into the ballpark at Vero Beach. She'd listen on the radio because of the way they treated black, flan, uh, black fans. They were dressed to the nines. It's an outing. It's an event. You think you'd want to embrace that. And, of course, people say hindsight's twenty twenty, But you want to embrace that. Bring people to the ballpark. They're fans. They're supporting you. But you're going to make them come through a hole in the wall. Make them sit on the ground. Make them have to run out of the way. And I'm sure if they got in the way, then that's all kinds of trouble, right? Nowadays, which is kind of funny, coming full circle, nowadays a lot of people would love to sit on the field and run. But it's a different time, a different reason, different perspective. Now, she mentioned on the radio She'd listen on the radio. Red Barber was the play-by-play guy at the time for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and it was so significant for Red Barber because he's from the South. And I'm going to let Red Barber uh, describe his experience when he found out about Jackie Robinson coming to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Of course, it was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before the Avenue Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. But I knew Mr. Ricky when he said he was going to do something, he was going to do it. And I had to examine myself. Because Mr. Ricky gave me time to either make up my mind to broadcast properly through a very stormy period or quit. And my first reaction was, when I came home, told Lala, that I said, I'm going to quit. I don't think I can go through with this. And she said, well, very wise woman. She said, you don't have to quit right now. Let's have a martini. And I began to think about it as the days went by. And I had to understand that it was by chance that I was born white. I could have been born black. I could have been born uh, to any, any parents, any place, any time. Judge Landis was not dead. And as I wrestled with myself, I heard the voice from the grave saying, report. And that's all I was to it. That's all. That's all I was to it, report. And he decided that he was going to report on it. 
the other thing we learn is before you make a rash decision, we're supposed to count to 10 before we hit send. Maybe we have a martini before we make any rash decisions. But he thought about it. Here's a guy from the South, from Mississippi, a Southerner. He was shocked when Branch Rickey told him about it in 1945. Remember earlier, Jackie Robinson talking about being prepared, having a support system. Branch Rickey had the, four, uh, the knowledge in order to let people know ahead of time. And so then after a while, Red Barber, he reported on Jackie Robinson. He reported properly. He didn't bring his biases in. He didn't bring what he had learned growing up in the South. Red Barber was an adult at this time in 1947. So imagine the 20s and 30s in the South, what that must have been like. And yet he was able to relearn. He was able to realize that what he had been taught was wrong. He changed his mind. He decided, A, first of all, to do his job, to rise above, kind of like what Jackie Robinson did, right? You're starting to see a pattern here with things. These big things come together in history because of the people and because of the people and who they were. It was Jackie Robinson, his character, and who he was. It was Red Barber because of the character and who he was. Sure, he was taught a lot of racist things, I'm sure, coming out of the South. But then he was able to think about it, change his mind, realize that there's something different that what he was taught and learned was wrong, and he changed. And he was instrumental in getting the fans to support Jackie Robinson so that Mrs. Robinson could go sit in the car and listen to something when they were being segregated and discriminated with at the ballpark in Vero Beach, listen to Red Barber, because he embraced the situation. He brought together the community on the radio to support Jackie Robinson. Red Barber was actually the Vin Scully before Vin Scully, in case you don't know who Red Barber is. In fact, Vin Scully mentored under Red Barber, and Red Barber basically groomed Vin Scully, if you might uh, say that. I know that's going to be offensive to some people, but again, Red Barber was there before Vin Scully. Red Barber was the Red Barber. Vin Scully is the Vin Scully. Here's Vin Scully telling a story about Jackie Robinson and the experiences that he had. That was a true story involving Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers. They were playing in Cincinnati, and Jackie had gotten some very serious death threats. So serious, the FBI, the police department were all over Crosley Field, and they had sharpshooters on the rooftop of Crosley Field. There were sharpshooters on the roof of the laundry back of left field. There were also sharpshooters on top of the post office or first base and down the line. So it was serious, and there was a great deal of tension amongst all of those who knew about it. And the Dodgers had their usual pre-game meeting, and it was even more tense as they tried to get a game frame mentally instead of being worrying about Jackie Robinson being shot at. And while the meeting was going on, a Dodger left fielder from Brooklyn, good-natured, happy-go-lucky guy named Gene Hermansky, and all of a sudden, right in the middle of the meeting, Hermansky said, I've got it. And everybody turned and looked at Gene, and they said, you've got what? And he said, I know what we can do to ease the tension on Jackie. And they said, what is it? He said, we'll all wear number 42. Well, it broke the tension in the room, and they went on to play a game. And thank the good Lord, Jackie was not bothered, and the game went on as scheduled. And when they finally decided in baseball where everyone would wear 42, 
it's only right to remember Gene Hermansky, who would have thought that indeed that day would come where everybody wears number 42. Nobody can tell a story like Vin Scully when it comes to baseball and even other things too. But the story there, imagine going to play a baseball game and you have to have FBI sharpshooters because there's death threats against you. And that's what it was like. Even up through the 60s, we all know Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated. What that must be like to have to work and live under those conditions on a regular basis. To know that people are out there hating you. Hating you so much so just because of the color of your skin that you have to have the FBI and sharpshooters and, and then someone with the levity of laughter comes up with, hey, let's all wear 42. They can't figure it out, right? But then that became a reality with Jackie Robinson Day every April 15th. And so when we look at the character of some of these people. Again, they were prepared. They had the support system. People realized. Some had to change their way of thinking. Others came around eventually, maybe not at first. Others might have embraced them at the beginning. But it takes some pretty incredible people, when you look at it, to get these stories of these great significant things that went on in history. Are we going to be a part of those great people? You know, we had the riots over the summer. A lot of people said they wanted to be on the right side of history. A lot of social media back and forth. I just want to be on the right side of history. Okay, so you're on the right side of history. But what are you going to do to change history? Instead of being on the right side of it, what are you going to do to change history? What are you going to do to have an impact? What are you going to do to be a Gene Hermansky? What are you going to do to be a Carl Erskine or any number, other number of players, Pee Reese, that came out? What are you going to do? Are you going to be someone that's going to stand on an island? Are you going to be a Lee Hanley? Apologize and try to help affect change? You know, Derek Chauvin, the um, police officer who kneeled on the back of George Floyd for over nine minutes, was found guilty today. We've all seen the pictures. We all know the story. We've had a, a year of upheaval because of it. Here's the clip that I was talking about earlier that I want to play, that Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, 1963, Birmingham, Alabama. This is well after he's retired from baseball. A civil rights speech. Take a listen and see if you hear anything that's relevant to what things are like today. I don't think you realize down here in Birmingham what you mean to us up there in New York. And I don't think that white Americans understand what Birmingham means to all of us throughout this country. And we think about the little kids being tossed from one side of the street to the other by the tremendous force of this hose. And we think about, oh, this picture just sickens me, this big brave policeman down here with his knee on the throat of this lady. And the problem of it is, ladies and gentlemen, is that this same picture of the dogs and of this policeman with his knee in the throat of this lady it's a picture that's being portrayed throughout the world. And I think the conscience of America is beginning to awaken. I think the first steps that were made here by the Birmingham businessmen with Dr. King and the other leaders down here is an indication that perhaps the conscience of Birmingham is beginning to awaken. The only thing that we are demanding is that we be allowed to move ahead just like any other American citizen. Did you catch that? 
Birmingham, 1963, white cop has his knee on the neck of a black woman. 2020, white police officer has his knee on the neck of a black man. Where's that spirit of Birmingham? Where's that conscience of Birmingham rising up? It's almost like the conscience of America needs to rise up, not in the political format. Take politics out of it. Politics just screws things up. Politics just incites riots and violence. It perpetrates the problem. We need real Jackie Robinson, Martin Luther King style. We need real Pee Wee Reese, Gene Hermansky, Carl Erskine style change once again. Genuine people coming together and changing whatever it is that needs to be changed, whether it's racial justice, whether it's something going on in your community, whether it's another type of injustice that's going on, whatever it might be. Maybe it's helping the elderly. Maybe it's the homeless. In Los Angeles, we have a huge homeless problem. It's been going on for years. What can we do? What can we do to affect change in our community? We might not be the Jackie Robinsons or the Martin Luther King Jr.'s, but we could be any number of these other people in a support staff situation, a support person, so to speak, and help out. Maybe we have to change the way we think. Maybe we have to change the way or what we were learned. Or maybe we need to just be bolder because we were taught the right way, but we're a little shy about it. Maybe we need to break away from that group that isn't in the right, that's in the wrong, and be on our own and step away and stand up and be like, this is not right. We need to make that change. So what are we going to do? And that's the question that each of us has to kind of answer for ourselves. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to affect change? What are we going to do to help others? What are we going to do when that next Jackie Robinson comes along? Are we going to be there to support? What if we are the next Jackie Robinson and whatever it might be? Are we going to be the one that has that support group? Are we going to be the one that has the character, the dignity, the class to endure it, but yet still affect change? Are we going to be the one that lashes out, fights back? Because there were a lot of people wishing Jackie Robinson would do that because if he did, that was going to be the end of it. There were people that were inciting him, trying to get him to lash out. And Branch Rickey had to tell him, just be patient. You're going to have to endure this. Don't react. Don't lash out because people want you to. They're egging you on because if you do, this is all going to end. And Jackie Robinson and all these clips had the vision, had the purpose in mind. He knew there were greater things out there. And because he stayed the course, Major League Baseball opened up. Opportunities opened up in other areas outside because Jackie Robinson took what he had on the field, that character, that class, that dignity, that pushback, that fight in the manner that he did. And he took that off the field into the communities, into business, into other areas. And with that same focus, that same drive, that same person, him and his family, they were able to affect change in other areas. And imagine if he would have fought back and if he would have maybe reacted and then people dismissed him that first, second year in, all the stuff that he was able to do might not have happened. But that's why it takes something more, that inner greatness, raising the standard, special people to step up, special people to step forward, 
and to be able to respond and react in a way that truly does affect change. Not just for now, not just in the moment, not just when it's trending on any social media app that you might be on, not just when it's cool or convenient, but something that's going to have everlasting change, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your community, your neighborhood, maybe your city, maybe your state. We don't know. The little things you do here can affect the greater good. And that's why I wanted to talk about Jackie Robinson because there's more to him than just the ball player. There's more to him and his family and his legacy than just his athletic accomplishments. Someone who had the dignity, the class, to be able to withstand racism, to rise above, to affect change. And now what are we going to do with that? Are we going to take that and continue to run with it? Or are we going to let that torch extinguish and let it die out? I think that's a question that each of us on our own will have to answer. This is Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, highlighting the stuff that's been stepped in so you don't have to. I'm Son Edom. You can find us on Instagram. There are two sites on Instagram. There's the show site, Two Steps Ahead Podcast, T-W-O, Two Steps Ahead Podcast. My personal site, Edom Rocks, E-I-D-E-M-R-O-C-K-S. You can, on either site, you can go to the link in the bio. It's a link tree link. You can click on the link. Options come up. There's options to view our videos on YouTube. You can uh, subscribe to YouTube and SoundCloud, and that way you get a notification when time a new show is posted and you never miss out. We are live every Tuesday night, 10 p.m. Pacific time on RadioWarp.com, Radio, W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. That link is also in the bio. In case you forget, a swag shop, if you like merchandise, you like to support the show, there's all kinds of different uh, items. You can just go to swag shop, click that, comes up, and there's shirts, drinkware, hats, all different kinds of sizes, all different kinds of colors and styles, some stuff for your dog. Your dog can be hip and cool at the dog park. And then um, also, if you want to uh, reach out, you can DM, direct message me and let me know. Any thoughts? And also, uh, two steps ahead podcast at gmail.com. TWO, two steps ahead podcast at gmail.com is the email. Um, and so, for those of you that email, I appreciate it. Thank you for emailing and uh, for your support. And so, for those of you listening, hey, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend, take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great, and we'll see you next time.